beautiful work called The Fountain. It's by composer Amy Wirtz, and she talks about how composers have long been fascinated by water and how she wanted to have that cascading, rippling effect uh, to uh, bring water to mind as we hear that music. This was performed as part of an ACM project, Access Contemporary Music, called Sonic Walkabout, and we commissioned eight composers to write music inspired by different historical and cultural sites in two neighborhoods in Chicago. They were Wicker Park and Lakeview. And at the heart of the Wicker Park neighborhood is the park of the same name. And In that park is this beautiful fountain that inspired Amy. Welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm Seth Bostead. I'm excited to feature this music from Sonic Walkabout. This music is hot off the presses. We just recorded it just got these tours together and they're available now. So uh, whether you're in Chicago or not, I think they're pretty fun to listen to. Of course, if you're in Chicago, you're able to actually stand in front of the site that inspired the narration and the music. You can hear the story behind the site, hear how it inspired the composer, and then hear a short piece of music. But even if you're not in Chicago, they're pretty fun, in my humble opinion, <laughs> to listen to. You can go to uh, the Google Play Store or the Apple App Store, and the app is called Gesso. G-E-S-S-O. Download that, go to self-guided tours, and then you can choose Sonic Walkabout Wicker Park or Sonic Walkabout Lakeview. I don't want to give away the whole tours, of course, so I'm just going to feature a couple of my favorite pieces and narrations on the program today. Today, Wicker Park is a, uh, well, it's a trendy neighborhood. It is, in fact, quite trendy. Uh, you're more likely to see double-wide uh, strollers in the neighborhood than you are to see the bohemians, the various uh, sorts of miscreants who populate, say, the novels of Nelson Algren. Uh, we'll hear from a composer inspired by the house that Nelson Algren lived in in the 1960s, 1970s, uh, where he had uh, his love affair with Simone de Beauvoir, wrote some great fiction, including The Man with a Golden Arm, which was turned into a not-very-good film uh, starring Frank Sinatra. That's just my opinion, of course. Uh, so Wicker Park today, yeah, is, is this hip, trendy enclave in the city, but it has its roots in the Polish working class, and so we wanted to make sure we reflected that. And uh, the two sites I want to feature now are uh, narrated by Dan Pogoszelski, who is a, uh, well, a longtime, lifetime Chicagoan and uh, Chicago enthusiast. He is a writer, and uh, one of the publications he writes for is called Forgotten Chicago. He's fluent in Polish. I went way out uh, to uh, the, the edge of town to a Polish bistro, interviewed him in the backyard on a lovely day. There were people speaking Polish all around us as Dan waxed rhapsodic about the Polish Triangle and Milwaukee Avenue. Let's hear from Dan and then hear the music inspired by these two sites. Hi. My name is Dan Pogoszelski. I'm a writer and editor for ForgottenChicago.com. And here you are in the Polish Triangle, or as it's also called, the Polonia Triangle. If you really want to get in the Polish spirit, you can say Trójkąt Poloniny, Polish with all of its wonderful nasal vowels. And it's really interesting because this plaza that you're at right here is bounded by three prominent Chicago streets. And each of them has been dubbed a different name that ties into Chicago as the Polish capital of North America. Nelson Algren, famed writer who you're actually at a fountain that bears his name right here, uh, compared Ashland Avenue, which runs north and south, to being a bridge because it linked together many of the Polish neighborhoods on the north side, as well as the south side of Chicago. Division Street, uh, some folks uh, actually compared it to looking almost like Bourbon Street with its wide sidewalks that you see there used to be called the Polish Broadway in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s had literally tens of polka bars where people would party way into the night. Milwaukee Avenue. Mike Royko um, used to call it that it was the one street in Chicago where it say sick them up in seven different languages, but certainly is Chicago's Polish corridor. Ties in to the city uh, and its history in so many ways. It's the working class antithesis to Michigan Avenue, where Chicago likes to put on airs. And all of these give an essence of why the Polish Triangle, when you bring it together, was at the center of what folks call Polish downtown. And within just a couple blocks of here, you have the headquarters for most Polish-American organizations that all came together right here and so for example if you were to look at the home bank um, it's now a cvs 
and you'd see that this lovely bank building has a bunch of office space over it. Um, that came out of the fact that above the bank, lots of Polish-American organizations wanted to be able to say that they were here in this most prestigious of all pieces of North American real estate if you're talking about the Polish community. And so acceding to demand, uh, the owners of that structure uh, made it a point to add on that office space. And so uh, lots of organizations had their um, offices right there. When you look along facing Milwaukee Avenue from the Polish Triangle or Polonia Triangle, um, you can see just past the old da Polish Daily Zgoda building, this beautiful white building that one time was the Northwestern Savings Bank, just past it is a wonderful Art Deco structure with over its doorway ZNP, which stands for Związek Narodowy Polski or the Polish National Alliance. And this Art Deco gem of a building, which during the Polish fight for independence during World War II, as well as the attempt to regain independence, uh, which ultimately took 45 years, four decades, it was out of this building, which as a seat for an organization that was one of the main pillars of Chicago's Polonia, the Polish National Alliance had, where people tied into the federal government in Washington uh, strategized and whether it was trying to fight the Nazis, trying to free Poland from the occupation of the Soviet Union, you had where Polish folks really made this a center for their fight. Now, today, that same building is now an official landmark of the city of Chicago. And why is it significant? Because Jeannie Gang, her buildings are all over the world. And of course, for all of you lovers of Chicago architecture, you'd be remiss if you did not mention the lovely Aqua building. Within a couple of blocks, you had where uh, the most important institutions of Poles in all of North America were actually all located within the environs of the Polish downtown Polonia Triangle. Hello, I'm Amos Gillespie. I'm a composer and saxophonist, and I performed and wrote music for the Polish Triangle. The area is still home to numerous Polish institutions, such as the Polish Museum, uh, Polish National Alliance, and the Polish Na Daily News, as well as the Chopin Theater. Uh, so I had 60 seconds to write another piece, uh, and I thought, well, what in the Polish culture happens uh, with a certain kind of uh, quickness and uh, can often be short and fun, and that's a Polish dance. So that's what I did. I hope you enjoy. <laughs> Milwaukee Avenue between Division Street on the south and North Avenue to the north has always been a bustling street functioning as a city within the city just three miles from downtown Chicago. The street's mix of architectural styles, historic commercial buildings, and rich array of entertainment venues, shops, and offices have made it a destination for numerous and diverse groups of people from the city's beginning to now. It has been especially important to Polish immigrants. Here's Dan Pogorszewski to tell us more. Here we are on Milwaukee Avenue, Dinner Pale Avenue, as some folks used to call it, really highlights how Milwaukee Avenue 
was the working class antithesis to Michigan Avenue. Sure, that may be the Magnificent Mile, but here you have what some folks like to say is true Chicago. Uh, Milwaukee Avenue is the Polish corridor, especially here where you have the Polish Triangle in this vicinity, but literally heading down all the way northwest to the city limits, you'd have different Polish patches that would all be anchored along the street, thinking of it somewhat as different beads along a necklace, with Milwaukee Avenue being this necklace. And so here you are in what was Milwaukee Avenue stretch of the Polish downtown. And sure, if Division Avenue was the place where Polish Americans would go to play and party with the polka, it was Milwaukee Avenue where folks would go to shop, entertain, and the like. And so it's a wonderful place for folks to really take in in the midst of this wonderful architecture this very unique thoroughfare, which is always, whether it's in the past, if you want to imagine what it was like 100 years ago, or today, always with the hustle and bustle of life. A city, a true city, as folks called it. And with the history of Poland, which, by the way, when Chicago was created in the 1830s, when it first received its municipal charter, um, to the many eras of growth that you had as Chicago became the metropolis of the mid-continent. Milwaukee Avenue was the place where Polish Poles from Poland would become Polish Americans. And what I mean here is that when people had to flee, whether it was because of economic insecurity as an occupied colonized land between the empires of Germany, the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Russians, or for example, World War II when Poland was fighting off the Soviet Union and the German Nazis, or later under the communist occupation. It was precisely here along Milwaukee Avenue that Chicago became that asylum, that place which Poles came to and found that they could create a new home people from Poland had the opportunity to encounter America. Remember that it was precisely here along Milwaukee Avenue that people, for example, that came to visit their family and friends before they went back, they were thinking of Milwaukee Avenue when they thought of the United States. My name is Trevor Patricia Watkin, and I was privileged to write a piece for Milwaukee Avenue. I tend to get very sentimental when it comes to streets and neighborhoods, and I'm especially fascinated by the diagonal streets that transverse the grid system of Chicago because they, more so than the north-south, east-west streets, seem to cross through a, a wider variety of neighborhoods and stories and all of that. So hence the, hence the name Time Zero, which refers not just to the passage of time, but specifically Milwaukee's trajectory on the diagonal. There's a repeated pattern in the piano that remains fairly static, sort of representative of the march of time. The different lines in the other instruments representing the way that we all weave in and out of each other, but really don't necessarily take much notice, hence why there's really no melody to speak of, nothing to really remember specifically about the piece except for just the sum total of its parts. heard music by Amos Gillespie for uh, the Polish Triangle, which is uh, the gateway to Wicker Park in many ways, and also Ukrainian Village, uh, which is just south of Wicker Park. Uh, the Polish Triangle is kind of right there at the convergence of the two neighborhoods. 
Uh, fascinating place in many respects. Love the music that Amos wrote for it. And then the uh, park there, if you go north along Milwaukee, we included the stretch of Milwaukee Avenue between Division and North Avenue, which is still an important bustling retail corridor. We heard Dan Pogorshelsky wax uh, rhapsodic about that and about all things Chicago. Uh, Dan loves Chicago, and he especially loves the Wicker Park neighborhood. It was really great to be able to talk with him about uh, the Polish Triangle and about that stretch of Milwaukee Avenue. At the top of Milwaukee Avenue, or that stretch of it, where North Avenue is, uh, in 2001, there is a building that still stands that was the site for a show called The Real World. Uh, this was put on by MTV, and they put a few people, five or six people from different backgrounds together in a house and, and just, you know, kind of saw how they live together. Do they fight? Do they, uh, do they date? <laughs> how does it work out? And uh, it, it was uh, a fascinating social experiment in many ways, but when it came to Chicago, it raised a lot of hackles. Uh, it was seen as the kind of last straw in gentrification. Interestingly, none of the composers that we chose for this wanted to write uh, for this building, so I wrote the piece myself. Uh, so let's feature that. I used some uh, old news clips to tell the story, and then uh, my piece, The Real World. And the musicians, by the way, are Amos Gillespie on saxophone, Trevor Patricia Watkin on flute, David Keller on cello, and Amy Wirtz on piano. So all of the musicians are also composers. Let's hear The Real World. Tonight on The Real World. Hi, I'm Carrie. I'm from New Orleans. I am 21 years old and welcome to everything. I don't know. Come on, let's go. Chicago police arrested several protesters last Saturday night in front of the Wicker Park house where MTV is filming their show The Real World. The protesters opposed the show's taping in that location, but they also wanted to draw attention to the gentrification of the area as more and more longtime residents are being forced out by rising property values. Was this the flyer? Yeah, it's the flyer. So that's not real? Apparently not. But you, you thought it was. I was hoping it was. Right, right. This fairly nondescript red brick building was a dressmaker's sweatshop in the early 1900s. In the 70s, it was a storage facility, and in the 80s, it was abandoned, occupied mainly by drug addicts and dealers. From 1989 to 1998, it was occupied by the Urbis Orbis Cafe, and in August 2001, it was at the center of a brief storm of protests when MTV chose to shoot the 11th season of its reality show, The Real World, here. The show had started with an interesting enough premise. What if a group of young people, instead of moving in with friends of the same class, gender, background, etc., had to live with peers from a wide range of backgrounds. The first season was a fascinating social experiment, but by the time they got to Chicago, it was pretty much an exercise in vapid narcissism. But it wasn't the show's decline that people were protesting. Though Wicker Park had been gentrifying for years, how long depends on who you talk to, the decision to film the real world in Wicker Park and to put it in the building that once housed Urbis Orbis was seen as an aggressive move by artists and other young people who were the latest group on their way to being priced out of the neighborhood. But the story is complicated. Urbis Orbis was a gathering place for creatives of all types. The arts festival around the Coyote arguably began at a table there, for example, but it also contributed to the gentrification problem. Then there was the fact that the protesters attracted the crowd by handing out fake flyers, inviting people to audition for the real world. So, though there were large crowds at the protests, most of the people wanted to be on the show, not protest it. August 2001 was arguably the last month of American innocence as well. The attacks of September 11th happened a month later, and, well, no one had much of an appetite to protest an MTV show in the wake of such a tragedy. When I wrote this piece, I was mainly thinking about gentrification as an inexorable process. For better or worse, once it starts, it's hard to control. <laughs> Thank you. 
That's a piece that I wrote about gentrification, so to speak, about the real world. I was fascinated, too, by this idea that uh, th that the protests were not fake per se, uh, but not exactly what they appeared to be either. And there was a kind of circus-like atmosphere there. I remember this. I lived in Chicago at the time. I didn't participate in the protests. I didn't live anywhere near Wicker Park, although we did go to Wicker Park in Ukrainian Village to hang out quite a bit. Uh, but I remember that there was this big circus atmosphere, and I wanted to capture that in the music as well. So this kind of inexorable creeping forward process of gentrification combined with this uh, circus atmosphere from the protests. One more site for Wicker Park. This is the apartment that Nelson Algren lived in. And I had a wonderful opportunity to talk with Dmitry Samarov, who is an artist and a writer and a big enthusiast of Nelson Algren's work. Uh, so we sat in Wicker Park on a sunny afternoon and he mused about Nelson Algren. And then we heard music from Kyle Gregory Price inspired by this house and the work of Nelson Algren. If nothing else, uh, Nelson Algren was one of the people who introduced me to Chicago years before I ever got here. Uh, so an older friend gave me, I think the first book of his I read was uh, Never Come Morning, which is an er earlier one of his books. Uh, and I grew up in the Boston area. But yeah, that, that book introduced me to Chicago. Uh, I don't, yeah, probably three, four years before I got here. It was a sh shifting kind of uh, working class neighborhood, various ethnicities, you know. Uh, not the yuppie paradise it's been the last, whatever, 10, 15 years, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, he, he wouldn't find uh, much that he would recognize. There's remnants underneath, like if you squint. <laughs> you know, places like the Rainbow Club still, still carry on for, you know, a bar that he was probably a patron of very likely a patron of which is a bar that has existed since the 30s so well i mean he came you know he came out he came of age uh, you know finished finished college basically during you know the great depression <laughs> and, and and the years after so he he had a journalism degree i forget if he finished or not but he was unemployed it was impossible to find a job and he sort of bummed around he, he went south he went all over the place he kind of like a, took the hobo route, you know, and traveled around, saw, saw the country uh, at a very difficult time. And I think that shaped a lot of his worldview and uh, political uh, sort of leanings, which, you know, he later got into lots of trouble for and which sort of torpedoed his career, you know. He, he, there was a lot of forces against him in, in the Red Scare times, etc. Although he was never a fully-fledged communist, he definitely had sympathies that way, you know, as a lot of people did. In his better books, I think he really caught the way that people spoke, the, the way that they formed sentences, and, you know, each each person has their own peculiarities and tics, and he had a really fine, finely tuned ear for the way that people in bars and uh, kind of, you know, gambling joints and... <laughs> kind of places of where of low pleasure you know <laughs> he he had a he had a knack for that and he palled around with people you know that were maybe maybe not life's winners <laughs> and those are the heroes of his books you know he was on the side of the loser you know often <laughs> and probably saw himself that way sometimes to a fault you know he's an uneven writer and sort of the last decades of his life had, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons, some, some societal, some self-inflicted, like he just never quite got it together, you know, and uh, ended up sort of bitter and kind of spent, you know, in an unfortunate way. Uh, but there were forces, larger forces at work that were against him, you know. He, he could have been, he could have ended up better, happier, maybe better known, you know, and outside of a small coterie of, you know, Chicago history obsessives, few people even know who he is, you know, or read his writings. I think somebody just told me recently that his, most of his books are again out of print, you know, not for the first time. I think he would have been, a, been an incredible pain in the ass. I, I think it would have been hard to be friends with him. Uh, I think, I think he harbored a lot of 
sort of I think he had a big chip on his shoulder for maybe some some valid reasons but some not valid and I think he was sort of uh very often felt like he got a raw deal or not given credit for things and while that probably was true that's not anything that's pleasant to be around like somebody that's perpetually disgruntled crotchety probably but probably like on a good day very funny I'm I'm glad he did what he did. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'd wanted to be his. I'd want to be his friend, but I I could say that about a lot of people I admire <laughs> or whose work I admire. Nelson Algren, the American writer, most known for his 1949 novel *The Man with the Golden Arm*, he articulated the world of quote drunks, pimps, prostitutes, freaks, drug addicts, prize fighters, corrupt politicians, and hoodlums. So I felt this composition needed a little bit of a swing to it to represent the setting, 40s and 50s of Chicago, Illinois. And also I felt that the melody needed a seedier dissonance to it to represent that community that Algren helped represent, to help bring to the light. That same seedy set of pitches also helped represent Nelson Algren's gambling problem. And while in Vietnam, supposedly making money on journalism, he angled for actually dealing with the black market. Thank you, Access Contemporary Music, for not just allowing me to be involved in such an interesting project, but for learning about such an interesting character. Music by Kyle Gregory Price, inspired by the work of Nelson Algren, and we get to hear from each of the composers. So these tours are really fun. Again, if you have the chance, go to Gesso, G-E-S-S-O, in the Google Play Store or the Apple App Store. Download that app, go to Self-Guided Tours, and then you can check out the sites. I'm only giving you a, a small sample in each of the neighborhoods. So that's the last one I'll do for Wicker Park. If you want to hear the other sites, uh, which include Quimby's Bookstore, a wonderful bookstore, uh, the Chopin Theater, which has been doing great work for a long, long time. And the Flatiron Building, uh, the Flatiron Arts Building, a really wonderful Flatiron Building, again, at that intersection of Milwaukee and North Avenue. Okay, let's turn to Lakeview. Uh, Lakeview is a, a neighborhood that uh, was uh, founded by German settlers, has had a lot of changes, much like Wicker Park, a lot of gentrification over the years, but still has a lot of wonderful sites. We had no trouble choosing historical and cultural sites in the Lakeview neighborhood. And uh, we had fun getting people, for example, uh, the legendary music club, Shubas, uh, which has hosted pretty much everybody at one time or another. I mean, not like Motley Crue, but you know, <laughs> smaller acts. Uh, we got the owner, Mike Shuba, to talk to us, or the former owner, uh, which is pretty fun. So let's start there. We'll hear from Mike Shuba, and then we'll hear music from Jonathan Hanau. And then we're going to go to the famous Dinkel's Bakery, which is 100 years old, still making Bavarian and German bakery goods the same way that they always have. My name is Mike Shuba from Shuba's Tavern in Chicago, and I am the former owner of Shuba's Tavern. My brother and I sold it six years ago. I'm in operations for the new owners. The building at 3159 North Southport was built by this Schlitz Brewery as a Tide House, meaning tied to the brewery. 
a practice that originated in the UK with their beers and post prohibition that model was thrown out, but these buildings still exist in Chicago. Schlitz was one of the forerunners of building these beautiful buildings, always on a corner and you'll see them around the city. They built them as strictly taverns and public houses for the neighborhoods. The upstairs second floor area was a dwelling for the saloon keeper. And my brother and I bought it in 1988 and did some infrastructure work, but left the building generally intact. It was, has recently been landmarked by the city of Chicago. And you'll note a plaque on the side of the building that explains a lot of the architecture firm and, and the style they used in building it. We opened Shuba's with the, th with the thinking of basically a public house that served good food and, and good drinks as a corner bar. The back music room that was always used as a community gathering point uh, locally in, since its inception for pre-prohibition was women and children in the back because they were not allowed in the saloon in the front and family gatherings, recitals, weddings, etc. But generally the, the saloon model back at the turn of the century was a community space. We envision it as such and then obviously we moved into live music and we grew it with the model of live music being local and national artists writing and singing their original music, sticking to that model as opposed to going with uh, cover bands and bar bands and things of that nature that would pay the bills on the weekends. It took many years of, of building it, but we were in the right spot at the right time and developed in, into the, what the Shuba's brand is today. In general, our model was and is today is developing baby bands because the capacity there in that back room is so small and you have these bands that come through that go on to greatness later. And a, a prime example is uh, Dave Matthews band or uh, John Mayer. John Mayer played to two dozen people his first play here and played here many times, probably three or four times throughout the next couple of years as a 18 year old, I believe it was, and just eventually developed into what he is today, something that's huge. And, and people tease me, especially family members and they ask about an artist is like, well, I'm sure this artist played Shubas, but have you ever heard of so-and-so? artists, they always felt that it was a very a welcoming spot. And when you walk into the bar, you can feel that. We were very proud of that fact. And we extended that to the artist as family and, and gave, gave them a good meal and always made sure that if they were going to come back and tour through the city again, that we had the opportunity to have them back again. And if they outgrew us, Sometimes they would just pop in and watch another band when they were playing a larger venue. So um, I think that that was the, one of the things that we are most proud of that, that they really took to us as part of the city when they came into the city and, and reconnected with us, even though they were, quote unquote, too big for us. Hello, my name is Jonathan Hanno, and I am the composer for Shuba's Tavern. Shuba's is a hip small venue off Belmont Ave that I've had the joy of listening to great artists over the years. The music's driving grooves and repetitive ostinato takes inspiration from the indie rock bands I've seen there. This piece is a building up of excitement about the very real reality of being able to attend in-person shows once again in the city. It has been a long and tough road for many artists, and to me, the starting up again of live music shows a real end to the pandemic. <laughs> Thank you. 
The legendary Dinkles Bakery is a Lakeview mainstay and is housed in a building originally constructed in 1929. The bakery was originally across the street where Rex Ruggs is currently located from 1922 to 1926. In 1926, the bakery moved to 3327 North Lincoln Avenue, where the Dinkles Cafe currently is. The bakery operated in this location until 1946. The existing store was built in 1946 and introduced wheelchair access as well as the Chicago Showcase. The bakery itself is 99 years old and has been in the family since it was founded by Joseph K. Dinkle in 1922 after he emigrated to America from Bavaria where he had trained as a master baker. In 1932, Norman Dinkle Sr. took over the family business and moved into the building you see today. The bakery has operated through a world war, the unrest of the 1960s, and now a pandemic. But one of the biggest challenges Dinkles faces is shifting traditions as the neighborhood outgrows its traditional German roots. Norman Dinkle Jr., who took over the operation of the bakery in the 1970s, grew up working there and has witnessed firsthand how the city's culture has changed since his childhood days. Dinkle Jr. retired recently, and the bakery is today run by his son-in-law, Luke Carl. This fourth generation of Dinkles still owns the business and uses the same recipes and equipment that have been in place for nearly a hundred years, including a mammoth-sized mixer and an 80-year-old scale. Their signature products include stolen, donuts, cakes, cookies, pretzels, bread, Danish, and specialty baked goods. Hello, my name is Amy Wirtz, and I'm the composer of the piece Party Cakes, which I wrote for Dinkle's Bakery. I was super excited to write music for Dinkle's Bakery, first of all because I used to live in Germany and I ate Dinkelbrot all the time. Dinkel is just the German word for the grain spelt, so that was bread made from spelt, but in English it's such a fun word I just couldn't resist. I was pretty happy to find Dinkle's Bakery when I moved to Chicago 12 years ago from Germany and have been going there ever since. I was also excited to write this piece because I have a long-standing family history and tradition of being obsessed with bakeries and cakes and cookies and things like that. And so uh, this kind of falls right in line with where my passions lie. Dinkles is such a fun place. It's got these pink lights everywhere. It's such a delight to smell, see, and taste. And I really had a lot of fun writing this music. I tried to get a sense of that sweetness um, and joyfulness that is just exuding from their bakery in the music itself. Please enjoy. Music inspired by legendary Lakeview music venue Shuba's, and how fun to hear from Mike Shuba himself, uh, the founder of Shuba's, and then music inspired by Dinkles, still making these wonderful German pastries, pretzels, all kinds of great baked goods the same way for a hundred years. That's music by Amy Wirtz for the Dinkles Bakery and Jonathan Hanau for Shuba's. Got two more. Uh, we're going to do the Athenaeum Theater, where I talked to Alan Chambers, uh, who is a pretty fascinating guy. 
kind of tough to edit him down because he had so many wonderful things to say, but I know nobody's going to want to stand in front of the theater for 20 minutes necessarily. Uh, maybe we'll do outtakes at some point. At any rate, Alan is a fascinating guy. He's the general manager for the Athenaeum. The Athenaeum is this huge theater that is part of St. Alphonsus Church and has produced all kinds of things uh, from HBO specials down to, uh, to local arts productions, and they do a lot to help the little guy in Chicago. They're fantastic. And the last site I'm going to feature in Lakeview is uh, a former bank. Now it's condos, uh, but it's a beautiful, beautiful building, also a flat iron building, and uh, also covered in terracotta, much like the flat iron building in Wicker Park. And it was the Marshfield Savings and Trust. So you'll hear about that building. And then I wrote the music for that one. For Relevant Tones, I'm Seth Bostead. Relevant Tones has been produced by Access Contemporary Music. Relevant Tones is sponsored by Access Contemporary Music, a nonprofit organization with the mission of bringing creativity to life every day. Relevant Tones has been sponsored by Access Contemporary Music, a nonprofit organization with the mission of bringing musical creativity to life every day. Find out more at acmusic.org. For Relevant Tones, I'm Seth Bosted. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to the Athenaeum. It was built the year that, that the, uh, the Titanic went down. And I, I know that because our heating system, I think, is, is as old as uh, the Titanic. And um, it was the community center for the German Catholic Church next door, St. Alphonsus Catholic Church, which was run by the Redemptorists at the time. Um, it has since been taken over by the, uh, the Archdiocese of Chicago. But at the time, uh, this was a very German community here in Lakeview. Matter of fact, I think this far west, and they consider this far west back then, were a lot of uh, celery farms, I've been told. Celery, of all things. Um, but why not? So anyway, it was a, a place for the German Catholic parish to, uh, to stay together. And so there was a bowling alley here, and a gymnasium, and a running track and a music room, and this whole campus includes a school, but there was also the, the, the jewel in the crown, which was this beautiful old uh, German opera house called the Athenaeum, and uh, to this day, it's still here. It's the longest continuously operating off-loop theater in Chicago. All along the way, there have been changes. Um, it's, it's a large building. It's, uh, at one point, there was a fire, and it used to be two stories, and now it's three stories, um, with three studio theaters as well. It's kind of become uh, the hub of the off-loop theater community uh, probably in the last 25 years and uh, continues to be so to this day with the three studio theaters um, that are all working with off-loop theater companies. And along the way, I know that uh, the German Catholic the and the Redemptorists realized that a building this special and this, this large, um, needs to be used much more than they were, you know, needing it, really. And so they also started renting uh, space at that point and theaters and different game rooms and all of that to, uh, to local clubs and to uh, performing arts groups and opera companies and orchestras and uh, a lot of dance. Dance Chicago was born here 27 years ago, uh, long before I was here at the Athenaeum, and uh, continues on. And uh, we just, it's, it's one of those places where activity is going to generate activity. That's one thing that I always say. Activity will generate more activity. And uh, we've been actually, pre-COVID, we've been pretty successful in growing a, a pretty exciting business here, especially with that main stage. There's always something going on at the Athenaeum Theater, athenaeumtheater.org. Hello, I'm Amos Gillespie. I'm a composer and saxophonist, and I wrote music for the Athenaeum Theater. I also perform saxophone in the recordings for all of the Sonic Walkabout locations. Looking back at the early part of the century in terms of what was being produced in the style of these German folk operas, I thought, well, if I only have 60 seconds, what is uh, a 60-second burst of energy musically in a folk opera kind of setting and or any kind of the, theatrical production setting. Uh, and that is an overture in my mind. So that's what I decided to emulate.
Rising from a slender triangular lot, this bank building has a tall and sleek flat iron shape with a dramatic rounded corner at the front. The building was built in 1924 and like so many buildings of its time is covered in ornate terracotta detail. The original main entrance, located at the highly visible corner of the building, is topped with a prominent bracketed cornice. This building was originally built to be the Marshfield Savings and Trust. One of the bank's board of directors, Avery Brundage, owned the contracting company that built the bank. That's very Chicago, isn't it? Brundage was an interesting figure, though. He competed in the 1912 Summer Olympics in Stockholm and later served as the president of the American Olympic Committee and then for 20 years, president of the International Olympic Committee. He also had a lot of interests in Chicago real estate. In fact, he owned the former LaSalle Hotel, which is now to LaSalle Place. He is still the only president of the IOC to have personally competed in the games, but his tenure was marked by controversy and he was ousted after the terrorist attacks in Munich in 1972. The building was originally supposed to have been nine stories high, but Brundage sold it to the bank's vice president, also very Chicago, Harry Starr, when he left Chicago in 1927, and it was never finished. Harry Starr was also an interesting figure. Among other things, he raised money for World War II bonds, raised funds for the YMCA, and he mounted a winning campaign to save the nearby Polina CTA stop from demolition. So think about Harry Starr the next time you get off that stop. He was hit by a truck and killed in 1978. According to Patrick Butler's book, Hidden History of Ravenswood and Lakeview, longtime residents still refer to this half-finished bank as Harry Starr's place. The building currently houses a photography school and gallery on the first floor with condominium residences on the upper floors. It became a Chicago landmark in 2008. I'm Seth Bosted, and I wrote the music for the building that used to house the Marshfield Savings and Trust. This is a beautiful building that I have walked, driven, and biked by hundreds of times. It was interesting to find out more about its history. What captivated my imagination was the fact that there were originally supposed to be five more floors on top of the four that still stand today. How would those floors have changed the building's appearance if they had been built? What activities would have taken place on those floors? Who would the tenants have been? I wrote an elegy in honor of the five missing floors. Thank you.